Hi there. Welcome to Creative Conversations, the Tiger Spirit podcast exploring and celebrating the creative process in life, the arts and business. I'm your host, Yang Mei Ui. I'm an author and podcaster. My guest today is cultural commentator Joanne Ui, who is also my cousin. Joanne spoke to me over the internet from her home in Suffolk, and the connection was a little glitchy in places, so there are a few sound distortions here and there, and also some household noises in the background. Apologies for that, uh, and I hope they're not too distracting. So, thank you for coming on the show, Joanne. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Now, I've described you as a cultural commentator, but of course, you're much more than that. Uh, so what is your creative background? I am a, I was trained as a lawyer, but I abandoned that as soon as possible and went into the fashion industry. I've been involved in every aspect of it. And that culminated in my becoming the creative director of a brand called Shanghai Tang, which is a lifestyle brand, which is in, based on the Chinese Chinese culture and Chinese aestheticism. After that, I became an environmentalist and founded a nonprofit organization called Clean Air Network, which addressed the issue of public health and air pollution in Hong Kong and the Pearl River Delta. Um, and after four years there, I became an entrepreneur and started a company called Plucka, which was a fine jewelry bricks and clicks brand um, and had operations in Hong Kong and London and sold jewelry by website and in retail stores around the world. Now I'm safely ensconced in Suffolk where I've been living for the past four years. And I, I write, um, I'm a marketing consultant on a very wide range of industries and issues. Um, and I am still involved in the art and culture scene. Fantastic. I think um, in our family, we've got lots of lawyers who've abandoned the law to do much more fun and creative things. Um, so, um, cousin Joanne, um, you now, as you say, live in, live in Suffolk um, and you're a writer and you're at home. Um, how has COVID-19 impacted you personally? Well, okay. So now personally, um, I, in my own creative practice or habits, I mean, it's, uh, it's influenced me a lot. I, for the last several years, I've been trying to write much more. And I had always, I had in my sights for the last two years, a book about consumerism. So with COVID, I literally had, I couldn't make any more excuses. And I finally set pen to paper to write at least three chapters. And that I've been making good headway on that. I also started a newsletter because I found that um, in the past, I had been interviewed on a, a lot of different issues, ranging from consumerism to art, to activism and politics. And I thought, okay, well, this is a good repository and archive of all the various, um, of my cogitations, theories and observations, which I, which I enjoy sharing with my friends. And especially because it gave me an opportunity to really reinforce a good habit of writing almost every day. I also disconnected from social media almost, I don't want to say completely, that would be, that would be stupid. I mean, I, because I'm in marketing, it's inevitable that I have to stay somewhat abreast of social media, but I hardly use my phone on a daily basis because I haven't had to venture out of the house. And it's been a fantastic way to marshal my concentration and focus something which I found to be increasingly elusive in the last several years because we're constantly battling with this tsunami of stimulation and communication, a lot of it unwanted and unnecessary. Um, and I've basically been, I've been able to, I would say I've been able to develop much better attention hygiene habits than I've had for the last maybe even 15 years because even before the iPhone, I was addicted to a BlackBerry very, very badly. And so this has been something that I've been trying to cope with literally for the past 20 years. And I felt that my brain had been rewired because of all the technology, the combination of having lived in Hong Kong where I lived more than 20 years before moving to England and all that technology in a culture which was very workaholic, 
basically had gotten me into a rut where I felt that all too often I was just on a treadmill trying to, I was running in place all the time, practically every day. So now I feel a lot more intellectually productive and I'm able to, I would say that my mental and intellectual throughput is at an all time high. And some of the habits that I've developed very recently are, for example, first, I've always, I've always left the phone in a completely different section of the house. I, now I would check it. I would say that now I check it systematically four times a day, but really not more than that. I also haven't been trying to read the news because it's just very repetitious and negative and doesn't actually assist me to navigate what's happening with COVID. And for that matter, it's academic since I can't go out of the house right now anyway. Um, so for example, I read first thing in the morning without checking my email or doing anything else. I just stay in bed and I'll read anywhere between 45 minutes to up to two hours. And I've been getting through a very, very dense book. It's a, it's a cultural history of Western civilization, not Western civilization, sorry, for the last 500 years. That's something that would have been completely unthinkable. I mean, last year, for example. And the funny thing is this book, which is 800 pages and in, in, in by an author named Jacques Barzon, who's a cultural commentator and historian, is, was a, it was a New York Times book uh, bestseller in 2000 when it came out. And can you imagine that an 800 page dense academic tone, tome of that type would have actually made it onto like the top 10 list is completely insane thinking back upon it this is because this is the kind of the bulwarks that i have to build around my attention and enable in order to to tackle it every day so that's just that's just one example i also exercise religiously i'm very fortunate because we have a tennis court at my house um and then i actually have become quite regimented in how i conduct my day so i'll usually have what i call some big overarching goals, like I'll say, okay, I want to write at least 750 words today of my book or something like that. Or I'll say, I have to read, and I annotate what I'm, this book I'm reading. I'll set the goal of re reading at least 50 pages of that. I'll have some minor and major goals for every single day so that I feel some sense of achievement because I think that's one of the best ways to get through COVID. Although as you're just floating in this amniotic fluid, which does where you, your feet are never touching the bottom, what I call touch the bottom of the swimming pool. So those are just some of my habits. But generally, that's that's how I've been coping with COVID, and it's been a very therapeutic process for me, both intellectually and in terms of how I'm interacting with the outside world. Yeah, I think this crisis, it's been really um, scary at one level and, you know, tragic for many people who are directly affected by it, who've become ill or whose family members have been affected. Um, and, and the rates of death have been, you know, awful. Um, but for most of us who are fortunate enough to be able to self-isolate um, and, uh, or, or sort of to, to be isolated, um, and um, it, 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 it produces a different kind of crisis. It's a kind of, well, what do we do now? Um, we're, we're lucky enough to be healthy. We're lucky enough to be um, in, in, in a safe space, um, but we're trapped um, in, in the house. Um, we're not able to go to our jobs. And particularly for someone like you, and I think your experience is probably not dif different from many other people. You know, you've, you've lived a very um, high-powered, dynamic life out engaged in the world, engaged in different uh, activities um, and um, and businesses and so on. Um, and now here we are um, in, in this space where we're kind of stuck. And what, what I see what you've, you've been doing is creating your own structure because going to work, you know, we have our nine to five jobs or, 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 or longer, you know, we, we get up, we go to work, we have a structure around that and we come home and there's a structure to our life, but you've created your own structure. Um, and actually it's more um, introverted time uh, for someone like you. And I, I know you as someone who's extroverted, who likes to go out, likes, loves being with people. Um, and so it's, it's fascinating for me to see you thriving in this, um, uh, in, in this situation, which for me, I would have thought, oh, how is Joanne going to cope? Um, but actually, because of you set up structures and you've 
you've created um, and, and you're using this time. And, and many of us um, think, oh, I'd love to read that book, but I don't have time. Or I'd love to do this, but I don't have time. But you've, you, you've um, used this time in a very, very positive way. Um, and I think also I like what you say about not looking at the news too much because um, often that can just stress us out. It panics us. It makes the crisis worse than it is. Um, and you're quite right. There's often for many of us, we can't actually do anything about it um, uh, other than, you know, follow the guidelines, uh, wash our hands um, and, and do all those things. But reading about it and getting yourself into a state isn't actually mentally um, healthy. Um, so thank you for, sh for, for sharing um, your experiences around that. Um, and you know, you, you've been you've been uh, uh, watching how COVID ha has been uh, affecting um, the uh, sort of uh, I suppose creative cultures um, uh, as well. And I think you've, you've written about that in in your newsletter. Um, so could you share with us some of your thoughts as to what impact uh, that's having uh, or that will have um, with with creative cultures? Um, you know, like the arts, um, theatre, books, and, and, and yeah. so on. Sure, sure. Um, actually, my next newsletter is about the art industry and how COVID is, has basically brought it to the verge of extinction for the vast majority of galleries who are already teetering on the verge of going out of business for a long time just because of the gearing of the art industry model, which is based these days mostly on earning most revenue during art fairs. Now just I'm just going to go, walk through some very simple economics, but I think that you'll find them even as just not a non-art person per se, very interesting and crazy. Um, to rent a medium-sized booth or decent-sized booth at a, an art fair like Art Basel, if you're operating in that international blue chip echelon of galleries, costs about sixty thousand US just for the booth rental alone. That's not that's without flying in any staff artwork or any kind of marketing to accompany your presence and announcement of, of your, the announcement of your presence at the fair. Just so all in, I would say that the average cost of running an art fair booth at, the, at a show such as that one, and these days, I'd say that most galleries participate in at least one, if not, if a big gallery will participate in all of them, but probably two shows at least. Okay, so... So all in, that would cost anywhere between 85, I would, let's talk, we'll, we'll speak in pounds, 70, 75,000 pounds, 75 to 90,000 pounds. That's for, now, of course, I'm talking about an established gallery, which means a gallery exceeding five years in age. Now, if you're a young gallery, you'll get a, con a concession, a con well, not a concession, you'll get a discounted rate, which takes into account the fact that you're or the new kid on the block, and probably also selling less expensive art. But it still costs around 35,000 pounds, 35 to 50,000 pounds to run such a booth if you're a young gallery. Now, now, now that in and of itself has been written about extensively that the cost of doing art fair all by itself is very, very high. But here is the thing that I wanted to highlight in this upcoming newsletter post. It was the fact that the price of even participating in an art fair is actually an op is operating a brick and mortar gallery space on the street or in a commercial in a commercial building, which in and of itself is a very very expensive um, operation. And if you think about how incredibly inefficient a gallery is, only a few people a week may actually walk into a street gallery. That is basically, it's a, it's a calling card which doesn't have that much direct economic utility, but still serve, serves as a filter and the price of admission into that elite gallery world. So I did all the math and I mean, you, it's very difficult to run a gallery without making, without selling probably at least I would say 1.2 million pounds worth of art. And, and I'm not talking about a top tier gallery, like a Gagosian or a Hauser and Worth, but basically the financial precariousness of operating both the street gallery and then being, not having, but being, Having to participate in major art fairs is unbelievably um, burdensome and literally 
pushes most galleries to the brink of going out of business almost every year, I would say. And COVID is obviously going to be, it's not just the straw that broke the camel's back. It's going to be like a big, you know, it's going to be like a big bulldozer, which is going to be causing maybe more than 50% of small, of art galleries, because the vast majority of them are not the big galleries, to go out of business. So that's just like a simple, those are the simple facts, which, which obviously highlight the need to restructure the entire business model of how art galleries are presently have been operated for decades. So we need to go to, so my, my, my conclusion on that was that galleries need to share space. So we need the equivalent of Airbnb and WeWork in the, in the art industry, meaning that galleries need to share cooperative spaces and galleries need to utilize the space in a manner which is commensurate with the economic benefit they derive from using a physical space, which usually means a two-week rental when they are opening a show for an artist to whom they invite all their top clients. And because sales generally result within the first three days of a gallery opening a show. After that, even though the show is up and you have to pay rent on a very expensive lease in a prestigious commercial area, your, the show may be up for two and or two and a half months, but is actually bringing no revenue into the gallery. So that, that, that was one point that I want to make. The other thing I want to say is uh, about the art industry specifically is that art museums, which are based on having these big blockbuster, big museums, having these big blockbuster exhibitions where the art is flown in from these far-flung corners of the world to make up a single exhibition, that is probably going to become um, much more unworkable with because their revenue base is essentially ticket sales for in-person visitors to view the art, to, 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 to view the art. So this period is a period intense soul searching among art museums, trying to build programming in um on, on a virtual platform where they're they've been relatively flat-footed just like the gallery business in being able to transpose that in-person viewing experience into a computer because i mean they have they just never could have foreseen that something like this could have happened so it's not just a question of putting a video camera in front of the artwork it's a question of changing their entire mentality to develop the kind of intellectual breadth and depth, which is going to be able to maintain the loyalty of the general public during this period when they can't physically go into a museum. Which brings me to my last point, which is that there are, this is one of my biggest frustrations and one of the reasons that I continue to be um, active in the art world. One of my greatest frustrations is seeing that new kinds of art, which are much more technologically avant-garde, so virtual reality, augmented reality, um, video gaming, all, all, all the things which populate our daily lives that are, we find that are the routine manner in which we consume imagery are actually totally absent in the contemporary art world. And that the, the contemporary art world is still stranded looking at paintings and sculptures. And that's largely been due to the fact that there isn't the technology to commercialize other types of artwork, those which live in a digital format. Now, fortunately, that time seems like that period of ghettoization, I hope is going to be coming to an end with the, adv the advent of virtual museums and technologies like blockchain, which can um, provide some, which can, create scarcity. I think that's been the main issue with digital artwork, that there, it's too easy to copy the file, et cetera, et cetera, and to vouchsafe the authenticity or addition of a single piece of artwork. But that time should be coming to a close. I mean, or should, I would say within the next five years, um, which is promising and which will allow more and different kinds of artwork where which live at the intersection of different disciplines such as science engineering um, astronomy biology to come to the forefront and finally take its rightful place vis-a-vis -vis traditional artwork which i would term actually for lack of a better word and this is just something i'm coining on the fly right now that this it's like the baby boomer politician i'm waiting for all of them to die 
so that basically the new guard can take its, the avant-garde can take its rightful place because that is actually how we are living and consuming imagery and experiencing life from day to day. And yet the art world is still very, it's like desperately laggard vis-a-vis what's the present, the reality of our everyday lives. So th- those are the those are three of my observations about uh, what's happening in the art industry. Yeah, I think it's very interesting what you say because, of course, the art gallery model um, is several hundred years old. You know, the first uh, art gallery was probably I think it was Dulwich Picture Gallery, um, and that was a sort of you know an, an amazing idea that you know you could open a gallery and let common people look at art as opposed to just kings and dukes and all the rest of them. Um, and then over the, over time, you know, um, we think of the impressionists and all as kind of oh yeah old you know they're old kind of boring old art it's establishment it's classic but actually they were the avant-garde of their time Uh, same with Picasso and when photography uh, emerged there was a lot of snobbery around that in the art world oh this modern technology but actually the again the 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 bright young things were experimenting um, with with photography Um, and so in a way um, we are still working um, with that old go and visit a gallery, look at art model. Um, and what you're saying is that um, it's time for change. And um, now is a crisis because of COVID, but actually it's also an opportunity. And you've got to um, think creatively um, to, uh, to adapt to the crisis, but actually it's an opportunity to um, bring in some of the more avant-garde yeah. you know, um, uh, technology. Uh, I think that, um, yeah, the technology won't be, it will it, it will be very difficult for that technology to reach the mainstream until there are ways to commercialize it, unfortunately. Anyway, I'm, I'm actually holding uh, a multimedia installation of media art in Hong Kong called Art Unchained in November, which is going to be five robots sketching human sitters in 20-minute sessions uh, uh, over the span of two weeks, and we have to already learn, we already have to figure out how we're actually going to convey that experience remotely, which I think is going to be an excellent exercise. But I think that we need to, this COVID makes us, I mean, because I'm always looking at everything, I'm always looking at consumerism, I'm looking at art and culture as well. Art is something where these days you can't expect to just convene a single happening and have everybody coming in, jetting in from all over the world to consume it all in one fell swoop in the same period of time. It's like consumerism. It has to be decentralized and asynchronous. It has to follow the same pattern as shopping. It's not going to be any different. Um, The other thing about art also, about technology and commercialization, Art, even though I believe it's a $60 billion industry, that is a drop in the bucket compared to all the other industries which are researching the commercial applications of blockchain, specifically in finance and and, and industries like shipping and manufacturing, where some chain of custody and of authenticating provenance is very badly needed. It's much more in those industries. So the art world by itself is not in a position to innovate. It doesn't have enough capital involved to justify, the ROI wouldn't make sense. So luckily, it's, it's, it's really industries like banking, which are going to pave the way for the adoption of similar technologies within the art industry. So the art industry is, it is not capable entirely by itself of of pioneering any of these important innovations, which will allow it to locomote forward. So for those people who don't know what blockchain is, can you give a very quick uh, explanation and how you're seeing it applying to the art world? Uh, Okay, blockchain is, this is such an incredibly, quick and dirty explanation. It's a manner of memorializing a transaction by having that, the the act of memorialization must take place in a decentralized manner, a decentralized distributed manner by having it be registered on servers which are geographically um, dispersed or so as opposed to like when I do a bank transfer and I use HSBC, HSBC is vouchsafing the validity of that transaction. Here you have the equivalent of several different entities which, which, who's, who's interlocking 
verification is necessary to validate that, that single transaction. So that one, so that one fact depends on the verification and validation of this decentralized network of participants. So, and, and that, and because it's so complex to unwind that transaction because of the interconnectedness or the, the, the fact that, that, that the one transaction is dependent on several parties, it makes it almost impossible to erase or um, fiddle with the transaction after the fact. And that is, so that, that, is, that is why it is considered to be an, an inherently self-validating system of verification. And so the importance for the art world is that in art, um, the whole thing is the, the worry about forgery. And so yes. what you're yes. saying is that um, this kind of technology can help um, verify and authenticate digital art. Right. So when a file would be distributed via a blockchain enabled system or a system backed by blockchain, that transaction would be stamped and registered, so to speak, on, in this distributed ledger of transactions so that the, it's the last that, that the, so, I know this is an important, I forgot to actually, this is a crucial part of what I just described. The transactions are something which are kept on a public ledger um, so that they can be accessed for anyone to see at any time. Now, blockchain is ballyhooed for its ability to anonymize the participants, but because of legislation, KYC, no know your customer legislation, which is widespread to prevent the use of blockchain for black mark for illicit activity. In truth, it's unlikely that you would be able to transact without with in total anonymity on blockchain. But the but the fact is, is that all this data, these trend this, this series, the sequence of transactions behind this one specific artwork would be something that could be accessed in an on, his, on a single page online, for example. Um, so we've spent quite a lot of time talking about the art world specifically. Have you got any thoughts around other uh, creative cultures like you know, theatre, cinema, big festivals, Glastonbury, um, um, and your great pan passion, tennis? <laughs> um, I okay, so about, about, music, about live performance. I mean, I think that, um, I mean, and I could say this as somebody who you who's become a recent introvert, there is no substitute for the energy that you get from being in the same room as other people. And that applies equally, whether it's a musical performance or a sporting event, unfortunately. Uh, now, I, however, I would say in the case of tennis, because it's always been a one-on-one -on -one duel. So it's things like that. You could still, I think you could still do fencing, boxing, um, tennis, some of these sporting activities are adaptable. I think, unfortunately, in the case of music, it really, it's extraordinarily difficult to bring the excitement of the occasion. I mean, it's also the occasion, that it's also the limited number of tickets to go into an arena to witness something live. I mean, so I don't know how, how they're ever going to be able to, uh, I suppose that VR is the closest substitute for the time being. And I, by the way, I'd like to point out that I was on our cousin, on your cousin, on, on my brother's uh, using his, his um, what's it called? The Google, his Google glasses, doing some virtual reality, watching a virtual reality concert before COVID in January, actually in New Jersey. And I was astonished at the, at the type of experience that you can have. And I remember trying virtual reality five years ago as well. And it has made a quantum leap in the right direction. And I could see it definitely um, subbing for a real life tour within an art gallery. I, but I don't know if it can ever, if it can ever mirror the experience of real life rock yeah. concert or anything like that. that 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 sounds quite exciting and quite interesting because i'm a natural introvert <laughs> um i i hate going to huge events and the, the idea of going to glastonbury just fills me with horror um so going to virtual glastonbury that might be all right um because actually i can then use my own toilet at home as opposed to queuing for the yeah, news <laughs> if we could go to virtual gas glastonbury then we could put it on mute basically <laughs> i think i think this is the main point um, and, and also, I think um, I, I was listening to uh, BBC Radio London this morning um, and uh, Robert Elms was interviewing the director of the, the London Museum, Museum of London, and she was saying that they are looking at um, 
changing their their sort of opening times and and being more strict with ticketing and opening in the evening which is great because it would allow people who go you know normally who go to work to be able to go to to to, to museums and so on um and also for me thinking about kind of going to a space where there are fewer people for you to be able to enjoy the artwork and exhibits is is yeah. is, is, yeah. is fantastic um so there may be some positives coming out of i i love that I mean, I actually just had a friend staying over who said, I hope that this episode teaches people to respect the physical distance in a social setting or even on the sidewalk that has been lacking all these years. Um, so I think, yeah, we cherish that, but it's especially because we're older. We don't want to be in a, Lloyd, a loud, boisterous, cramped restaurant elbow to elbow with somebody who's basically, you know, screaming down their, their glass of beer. I, I mean, I, that doesn't, wet my appetite whatsoever. I'm not dying to get back into a pub. I'd like to have an alfresco meal outside, but I'm not really, I mean, I, I, to get back into these, these crowded settings of a music festival or, or even to go to the symphony, which is a great, I mean, I feel very sad about that. That's one of the things I miss a lot about not being about COVID. Um, I'm not really itching to do it that much. And I'm so, going to be doing car trips through. I, I'm going to try to convince my husband to go on car trips to continental Europe. We're going to try. Okay. He's laughing over there. <laughs> yes, and, and I'm I'm go, I'm taking up more cycling, um, and uh, just to try and mix that up with you again. You know, uh, the the problem is we all get into our cars, and then we've now got some you know climate change problems because of um, of, of car emissions. So we need to kind of manage that. And I think the fact that London, particularly, is uh, and and other big cities are putting in cycle lanes and encouraging people to walk and cycle. I think that 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 is a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think though, I want to just add a couple of remarks there. I think that um, the thing is all these different industries, they have business models based on densely packing in the customers. So, I mean, that, that's going to be, that's going to be the most, the most difficult thing of all. Yeah. And so uh, kind of looking at um, society more widely, how do you think all this, this particular crisis um, will change society? We've touched on restaurants and, and, and so on. Um, and do you have any other thoughts? I think that this is, if there was one time when we're going to revisit the idea that how good a growth economy, an economic model based on endless consumer growth is. This is the time we're going to be looking at, looking deep inside and thinking, I haven't needed to buy anything for six months. I haven't been subject to envy or coveting or comparison with my neighbor. Um, I was just listening to uh, an economist named Robert Frank who was talking about the phenomenon of the cascade of consumption where due to, it starts with the very top, top stratos of consumer who needs a bigger, ever bigger house and a bigger car and all that. But it actually has a knock-on knock effect, a ripple effect throughout every level of society so that um, compared to 20, 20 years ago, the average American house is much bigger in size and so is the average wedding, et cetera, et cetera. When all those things, that money, that consumption, which is actually an that that, that increment of extra consumption, which is attributable to invidious comparison with one's neighbor, could be better allocated and spent on something like climate change mitigation or, or better public health or more widespread, high quality education, et cetera, et cetera. So I think this is a really great time for soul searching in that direction because it's one of the very few times where, I mean, first, everybody has to save money through no choice of their own, but also because they literally haven't had any cause to go out and shop because if we really think about it, I mean, we've had to second, we've, this is the first time where you have to actually pause and think, do I really need to go to Waitrose? You and, and you don't you don't need to, you obviously won't need a secondary consumption item like a beautiful outfit or a, high, a pair of high-heeled shoes or anything like that. Um, so I think that this will bring us one step closer to what I call post-consumerist society, which is going to be um, less gung-ho about just on, being on the endless hamster wheel of consumption in, for its own sake. I don't know how much that's going to affect younger people who are really just kind of champing at the bit to just get back on Oxford 
street and start buying fast fashion immediately. Um, so I think there, there's that. I think that um, there's also, we see a similar effect going on in higher education. Right now, everybody is looking at university and thinking of its incredibly high cost, especially in, in the United States, and how really, I don't want to, this is not the exact, this is not the right aphorism, but it's, it's kind of, during COVID, we had to basically take every class via video. So as if the cost of these really elite universities, I'd just say the emperor has no clothes on, that basically this is stuff which could be administered almost exclusively via YouTube video. And Sam himself has decided to take his first term at Imperial and remotely. Yeah, Sam, because he had already been doing that for months and months and months and found, it, found that he was, it was a better allocation of his commuting time to watch a YouTube video of the lecture, which just took place the next day, sped up by 50% because it wasn't exactly, it wasn't riveting anyway. But it's, so it's, I think that hopefully this will make people think about the cost of education and whether we need to reconfigure the entire system because of all just the giant amount of money, which is going into getting a BA, which is not bringing young people to a higher level of actual vocational qualification and it's interesting what you say about young people because that brings to mind the the the, the, the question you know we have a, a whole generation two generations the 20-somethings and the younger generation who have been you know who coming of age or, or, or who have been uh, affected by this crisis this year and it could uh, obviously be ongoing some of the um, the knock-on effects and in terms of university for me um, my university experience was um, really primarily to do with um, the intellectual stimulation I got from my friends, from being with friends, from going That's hunting and true. picnicking and, and, and kind of learning how to be a person, um, emerging from school uh, and, and how to be a grown-up on um, this first time you know I'm, I'm, I'm in I'm in a shared house I'm learning to cook I'm try, trying to negotiate with my my housemates around those things it's it gives you certain life skills that it's actually beyond just just the study so a lot uh, one generation at, at least the the, the, the students of, of this year um, are, are missing out or potentially could be missing out on the next few years um, of yeah. that kind of life experience I'm really, really glad you brought this up because one of the issues with COVID is that it has accelerated it, deepened a phenomenon which has been brought on by technology and over the last 10 years anyway, which is increasing anime and disconnection, which is enabled through asynchronous and remote messaging systems like the one we're using now or through WhatsApp, et cetera, et cetera. And that's extremely dangerous. And I made, this is something else I made light of that in order for civil society to function, I mean, it's already breaking down in the United States, it's much more functional in the UK, you actually need to have more direct intercourse, oh, that sounds wrong, but, but you need to have intercourse with every strata of society. There needs to be some way in the pinball machine of life for people to actually encounter a taxi driver, to go to the baker, to go to the, the market, the, the golf course, but also, church, whatever. And I think that those opportunities had been dwindling anyway. And I noticed when I visited James, okay, James is our cousin, or your cousin, my brother, that it was such a rare occasion for me to even encounter another American person when I would be ensconced in his suburban house in the middle of New Jersey, unless I got into the car and maybe I would go buy a fast food hamburger and then I would be thrown up against, I'd have a collision with somebody from a completely different walk of life and a different socioeconomic strata. And I think that this is, this is incredibly dangerous. This is the one, there've been many aspects of COVID that I have cherished because I'm a newfound introvert, as I said, uh, and I'm, I'm really enjoying it. But it also, there is this great danger of um, in, increased disconnection with our just fellow citizen and neighbor and the people which basically give us a much more complete notion of what the common wheel means. Now, I think the UK is much better than the United States because the US is very, it's much more, it's even more car centric and more dispersed and more suburban. So, you know, you, but it's still an uphill battle because COVID shows us 
what is the natural destination of technology and what it means for the individual burrowing and burrowing increasingly into this very solitary silo. And that is actually exacerbated and um, reinforced by our confirmation bias and by the algorithms and Google, which keep on serving us back a, a menu of content based on our demonstrated cooking preferences. And so if you're not actively aware of it and don't manage it, if you don't, if you don't actually, I mean, one of the funniest pieces of advice I've heard, because we talk about creativity as well, is do weird stuff on Google. You know, Google stuff which makes no sense vis-a-vis -vis your established browsing pattern of stuff that you would ordinarily look at. So if you look at, if you're always reading liberal media, if you're always like a Guardian reader, I think once in a while, you know, it serves you well to log on to Fox News to make sure that you're tampering with your cookie preferences so that there is a chance that you will be served up something unexpected, which doesn't, again, confirm your existing biases. So there's a lot to struggle with in technology. And I think COVID has been very valuable in illuminating these inexorable vectors of transformation in how we interact with society, each other, and also what are the long-term consequences for civil, civil society? That worries me. I was already worried enough about civil society beforehand. And now you know, I'm, I'm, even, I'm even more worried. Yeah, I agree. I am very concerned about certain aspects of it, which is around um, carriers of disease. Because historically, if you look back at um, uh, at um, the history of discrimination, um, that's one of the subtexts ar around, um, oh, that group of people, they bring disease or they're dirty. Um, and um, this idea and um, we're having you know leading up to, to, to now we are we've had um, public anxiety and 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 uh, uh, differences around them and us and I think that potentially if we're not careful and we're not conscious then COVID can um, bring this kind of problem and and I think uh, the the whole thing that it's originated from China and the discrimination and the abuse that uh, East Asians have experienced because of 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 this COVID um, virus uh, is an example um, but also thinking back there was the film star in the 1950s a woman called Lena Horne when she um, stayed in a hotel and she went into a swimming pool the other guests who were white got out because they felt that she had contaminated the water. Um, that was all completely psychological and all about prejudice. Um, and that is really scary if that is something that's going to emerge or re-emerge again in a society where we have fought so hard and we've worked so hard to try to be more democratic, more equal, more diverse and more, you know, um, uh, accepting of, of, of other uh, people. And, and so, that there's that. And then the other concern I have is bringing up a generation of, you know, the young kids now who are in a climate where, oh, wash your hands, don't, 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 you know, don't, don't go near that person or, you know, um, uh, don't breathe their germs or whatever it is. Um, are we going to have a generation of, of, of kids who are going to grow up um, anxious about cleanliness and health or just anxious generally about other people? Oh, they're the most anxious generation already. I, actually, there's, I have a, I had, a, I shared a, I don't know if I shared a podcast. It was about Jonathan Haidt. It was talking about um, victim culture, excessive political correctness, safe spaces, basically creating an atmosphere of anxiety around ch child, just child rearing in general, and being paranoid about a pedophile snatching your child off the sidewalk when they're running an errand, not letting them do anything independently until they're 14 years old. I mean, and we remember we would bike and go, you know, we'd do a lot of stuff by ourselves. You know, we, we and we, our parents weren't paranoid about that. So I think that um, the amount of suicide and depression, especially among young women, there's a giant disconnect between the numbers, the statistics for women and young women and young men. Women are suffering disproportionately, mainly because of social media. Um, they're definitely growing up in, a, in, in an intense climate of anxiety, especially, and, and added to that, they're, they're dwindling economic prospects vis-a-vis -vis previous generations. So 
when you contribute all that, and then you have the high cost of college education, which this generation will have to figure that the meaning and the significant, like the significance of that out. Unfortunately, they're not going to be the beneficiaries of a reconfigured educational system. I think it's a tough time. I mean, I have, I just knock on wood. I'm very happy that my own son, as James said, he's through the bottleneck, but we'll see. I mean, James has two little kids that have yet to go through the bottleneck. I think they will. But I think it's very difficult to find a balance if you're a parent. You're, there's too much. That's another problem, right? The problem with the internet: too much information, too many people giving advice. It's that's that's one of the problems. That one of the things I have to do by the end of the year is write an essay for a friend of mine is writing. Uh, she's a she's a former politician in Hong Kong. She asked me to contribute a chapter about media and COVID, and I think one of the most this has been the most damning episode in terms of the danger of fake news, the danger of too much news, the danger of a 24-7 news cycle. You see governments reacting in real time and basically losing the confidence of their citizens because they're doing about faces literally between news, between press press conferences, basically, in these different jurisdictions. So anyway, I think, yes, the climate of anxiety that children are growing up in is just, um, yeah, totally unprecedented. And it makes you want to become, I don't know, that movie with Viggo Mortensen, where he basically brought up his kids completely off the grid. There's a good case for homeschooling. I personally think if you have time, if you're, par- if you're parents and you have time for that, it's not a bad idea. Okay, so I can't, I, 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 I can't believe that you and I, that I said this on, on your podcast, because we're so overeducated that I'm advocating homeschooling. But we, schooling needs to be reconfigured. Yes, and I think also to try and end this, wrap it all up, because we've kind of gone into this silo of doom and gloom, um, to, to try and kind of bring us out again. I, I think it's it's really about self-awareness and, and self-checking. And it's like, well, I, uh, and I suppose it's around cognitive behavioral therapy is a very good tool. You know, is this anxiety real? Um, you know, is it likely to happen? And yes, there are things out there that are worrying, but hang on, do we need to just dial down my anxiety at this point a, a notch um, and just kind of take a breath and, 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 and think, about, um, think about it in a more uh, holistic way? Um, and, do we, and how our anxiety may be impacting our children or the people around us and to kind of step back and, and have that self-awareness and, and uh, a sense of these are in our thoughts, um, and, but are the thoughts necessarily real really you know a real reflection of what's going on out there and so if if we have that self-awareness i i hope i would like to think that we can emerge from this crisis stronger and better as opposed to um you know more miserable and 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 more neurotic i think that um covid definitely has provided the breathing space for parents to think about what how they've been interacting with their children and the rules that they've laid down. And I mean, however, the best thing would probably be to take the kids camping. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, it's all, it's all well and good for us who are in our fifties to say, okay, well, I'm able to look at my life from 50,000 feet up in the air with an Eagle's eye view. And I know that I'm just a tiny moat being buffeted by fate and time. And there's not a damn thing I can do. I should just calm down. Of course, when you're a 14-year-old girl and you're looking at your friend's Instagram feed, you're not going to feel exactly the same way. So I think that, yeah, I mean, it's, that's the thing about being a kid. So, um, but I do think people are, they, let, me, let me put it this way. COVID has basically given our best instincts a chance to, 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 it's reinvigorated our best instincts, I believe. Whether we can take that, that knowledge and observing our best selves during COVID and parlay it into a permanent lifestyle or behavioral change, that's always the giant, that's a giant challenge of human life, basically. So, I mean, I'm fortunate. We're both really lucky. I have a lot of control over how I spend my day, literally minute by minute. If I lived in an urban place, I, don't, I probably wouldn't feel so confident about being able to develop, to take, to take forward my really great habits that I've developed during COVID. I mean, 
I'm looking at this period as the first time that I've actually been able to um, achieve my the equivalent of New Year's resolutions for my for, for how I'm leading my life. I would say this may be the first time in my adult life I've been able to do that. So, I mean, for me, it's been a really, really positive experience. I, and so I hope, I do also want to end on a positive note. <laughs> it, it's easy to be, I mean, I'm a... I'm, I'm one of those insane people. I'm definitely on Prozac on one level and a Cassandra on the other. Never the twins shall meet, but somehow they do. I think you're the same. Actually, you're more positive than you're. You've always been much more positive than me. It's uh, it's a conscious thing. I have to I have to make myself be more positive because I'm I'm a natural Eeyore, and I'll be oh no this is really terrible. Right. Um, so I have to force myself to think of of the more positive side, and I think that's not a bad that's not a bad thing. It's it's not kind of airy fairy, um, but positivity, but more kind of okay realistically and in practical terms what positive thing can i do or or or, yes, or, yes, or can i see in yes, this situation um yes. because one can always see oh, this is all very terrible but also um yeah so it's it's a conscious conscious effort um yeah so joanne thank you so much for coming on the show um where can people go to find out more about you and your work um you could you could sign up to my newsletter at culturevlog.com that's probably the best place. Or you could follow me on Twitter at Joanne Uwe. Although I'm, I'm basically not participating in social media. Yeah, there's no point following you on social media because you're not going to but, but I don't actually update my blog. I actually just send out the newsletter. I okay. decided, by the way, I mean, I'm doing it because I want to. I'm not doing it for status or to, as an instrumentality necessarily. At the, now, at least for now, I want to just keep it up. So just okay, sign up for it. Okay, sign up for Joanne's newsletter. And can we have that? Um, where do they Cult go again? Culture vlog with not culture blog, pl culture vlog with a V. Brilliant.com. Joanne, yeah. Uwe, thank yeah. you very much. My creative conversation today was with Joanne Uwe. There are photos and links to some of the things we talked about on the show notes page. You can use the bit.ly short link bit.ly bit.ly forward slash creative conversations hyphen podcast or you can go to tigerspirit.co.uk forward slash blog and search for joanne Uwe on covid and creativity episode reference ccv 0303 if you've enjoyed this episode of the creative conversations podcast please share it with your friends wherever you share stuff or you can subscribe to the show or leave us a lovely review on anchor.fm, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Spotify. You can find it by searching my name, Yang Mei Ui, and I'll spell that for you. Yang Mei, Y-A-N-G hyphen M-A-Y, Ui, O-O-I. All this will help more people hear about the show. The Creative Conversations podcast is produced by tigerspirit.co.uk. The podcast web link again is bit.ly bit.ly forward slash creative conversations hyphen podcast. I'm Yang Mei Ui. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook as at Tiger Spirit UK. Thanks for listening and see you next time. <laughs>